You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, so we're um, we're at just at the top of the hour now. So um, Fran and Bridget, I think whenever you're ready, okay. we can get started. All right, well, well, well here we go. Um, thanks so much, Jennifer. Um, I'd really like to thank Krika and the Center for German and European Studies for hosting the talk today. And, and an extra big thanks to, to Jennifer and, and Courtney and, and the other members of the, the team at Krika for making it all happen virtually. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce to you um, Bridget O'Keefe, Professor of History at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. Um, Professor O'Keefe has written extensively on questions relating to empire, nationhood, and internationalism, and I'm a huge fan of her work. I'm just so glad she can be with us now. Her first book, New Soviet Gypsies, Nationality, Performance, and Selfhood in the Early Soviet Union, published in 2013, explored questions of nationhood, race, and identity in the Soviet Union. And her new book, which she'll talk about today, Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia, it asks um, really important questions about the global politics of language and translation, and also about how individuals um, search for meaning and connection. And what I really love about the book is we see these dynamics taking place on an international level, on the international stage, but we also really get to know that the, and care about the characters in, in the book as well. So I think it's just one of those brilliant examples of a book that is, um, really significant in terms of the big arguments that it makes, but also just really intimate and personal at the same time. And, and I think that's a rare accomplishment. So, so congratulations on it. Um, Professor O'Keefe has other exciting projects in the work, um, including a, um, a multi-ethnic, a new book on the multi-ethnic Soviet Union and its demise, which is coming out soon with Bloomsbury's um, Russian Shorts book series. And I look forward to that as well. So I will stop talking and turn things over to Bridget. And, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for the generous introduction. And thank you, Fran, also for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I also want to thank the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison Center for Russia, East Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia and the Center for um, European and Germanic Studies. <laughs> I think I got that right. Um, and to um, Catherine Ciancia and Sarah Thal, who have agreed to give some comments and ask a few questions after I've finished with my presentation. Um, for those of you who just stepped in, I also do have to give a special thank you to Karen Evans-Romain, who was my undergraduate Russian language teacher. So without her, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have been many places. So it's really exciting for me to see that she's with us today. So without further ado, I am terrible at multitasking. Um, so if you can give me about uh, two seconds to put up my slides, um, I will um, get us started. And we can think about Esperanto and languages of internationalism in revolutionary Russia. All right. In 1887, a humble Jewish eye doctor named Ludovic Zamenhof tried to kickstart a global revolution. From the Western borderlands of a czarist empire in crisis, he launched a new international language of his own creation, 
and he called it Esperanto. Zamenhof's International Auxiliary Language of Esperanto was designed to do far more than make it possible for diverse peoples to effectively communicate with one another across linguistic, ideological, national, and imperial borders. Zamenhof designed Esperanto to heal humanity's fractures. He hoped that Esperanto would bind the world's diverse peoples together as friends, as family, as fellow human beings, despite their differences. Esperanto, he hoped, would allow people all over the world to better understand and to appreciate one another, no matter the differences or the similarities that they discovered in the process. His vision for Esperanto was ultimately about creating a new kind of human being, a new human being equipped with empathy for all humankind and a global consciousness made possible by what he claimed was an easy to learn international auxiliary language. And so Esperanto rightly means in Zamenhof's language, one who hopes. This was a man who hoped and dreamed. Some of you I know in the room have heard of Esperanto and I believe at least a few of you have learned at least a few words of it. Some of you have only seen uh, Esperanto mentioned in footnotes. A few of you might be wondering why I'm asking today that you consider Esperanto's historical significance especially today in our era of unrepentant global English. But in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, ordinary people around the world looked to Esperanto with hope and excitement for a better future, but also for a more meaningful international present. And Zamenhof's international language captured people's imaginations and allowed them to knit themselves together into new globe-spanning social networks. Zamenhof's revolutionary international language has largely been consigned to history's shadowy margins as a quirky linguistic failure and an obscure totem of a bygone era. Esperanto enters most historians' frame of reference as a passing quixotic blip in the rearview mirror. But what happens if we look again? And what happens if we train our eyes on Esperanto and the ordinary people in Russia, the Soviet Union, and all over the globe who embraced it as a language of hope and also as a vehicle of cosmopolitan self-fashioning. Perhaps the people in the past who are typically dismissed to the footnotes are worthy of being put front and center so that we can learn from them. Esperantists, I argue, spoke distinctly to their age. They were not outliers. In, in many ways, one of my main arguments is that the Esperantists were exemplars of the era that produced them. And they can therefore help us to make better historical sense of their momentous era of globalization, one that was no less fraught than our own. The Esperantists who animate my book were, alongside their educated contemporaries in Russia and throughout the world, exceedingly self-aware that they were alive in an age of galloping globalization. Theirs was, of course, a revolutionary era that transformed how people traveled and communicated with one another. It upended how people thought about time, space, and their relationship to both. The late 19th and early 20th centuries witnessed ordinary peoples drawing into a veritable world fair of new imagined communities, not just national ones, right, but local ones, international ones, global ones. As the world shrunk and the universe of possibilities expanded during this era, ordinary people re reached out to the world and across borders. 
they sought meaning and membership in global communities that were committed variously to humankind's transformation. Esperantists were models of this lived ordinary internationalism. They were self-styled, self-made global citizens empowered by a language that afforded them the opportunity to communicate across and beyond borders. And in Esperanto, many ordinary people found an outlet through which they could creatively layer, combine and remix their identities and their interests, personal, ideological, local, global, regional, yes? In an age that seemed increasingly to demand singular loyalties and flattened subjectivities, Esperanto opened doors onto the wider world and invited its speakers to pursue an untroubled fusion of interests and a patriotic cosmopolitan. <laughs> my task today and the point of my book is to explain how Esperanto emerged in late Imperial Russia and managed somewhat improbably to speak in often compelling fashion to ordinary people contemplating their place in a globalizing world. And I want to give you a glimpse of how Esperantists can help us, as I've been arguing, to better appreciate ordinary internationalism in both late Imperial Russia and the early Soviet Union. A study of Esperanto in revolutionary Russia also invites us, in fact, it demands of us, that we focus in and pay attention to the underappreciated centrality of language politics to histories of internationalism. Historians of internationalism have largely taken the question of language for granted, but we can't take for granted that the historical subjects whom we study, even the avowed agents of internationalism among them, were reliably able to communicate effectively across linguistic borders. So historians of internationalism need to listen in on the linguistic cacophony and the miscommunication that often prevailed in international and internationalist settings. In the din of multilingual gatherings and amidst the clangs of miscommunication, we can hear the centrality, but also the frustrations of the language politics that have so far been understudied. To write this book, for example, I had to listen in on the World Congresses of the Comintern. And the Comintern was the Communist International, the Bolshevik headquarters of world revolution from 1919 to 1943. In order to listen in on these world congresses, I did what I so often do as a historian. I read transcripts of meetings as well as a variety of memoirs written by participants who had participated in these Comintern World Congresses and in other Comintern affairs. What I heard was the privileging of German, French, and ultimately Russian. What I heard was cacophony, misunderstandings, and grievances all products of the common terms messy and unabashedly Eurocentric language politics. The common turn, I argue in the book, was a Bolshevik Tower of Babel. Without a shared language to unite them, the socialist revolutionaries who assembled periodically at these common turn world congresses frequently experienced the task of plotting worldwide revolution is nothing but an enormous headache. As one Spanish Comintern delegate named Pastana later recalled of these Comintern World Congresses, quote, the number of translations required made the discussions endless. The whole thing was immensely time wasted. He said that as the Cominternarians grew increasingly exhausted, quote, the translations were shortened more and more until there scarcely remained anything of what any speaker had actually said. 
Pistana wasn't an Esperantist, but after days and ultimately weeks of enduring the exasperating language politics at the Comintern um, World Congress in 1920, he urged the Comintern to adopt Esperanto as a working language of translation. An earlier history of the Comintern rarely, if ever, paused to consider the linguistic obstacles that prevailed in this Bolshevik-led scheming for worldwide revolution among a global proletariat. Listening to these language politics means better understanding the centrality of language to these internationalist experiences, experiments and endeavors. But it also allows us to better get at what we historians like to call lived experience. Taking this approach opened up the common turn to me as a space overwhelmingly of linguistic confusion of slights and hurt feelings, of common Trinarians falling asleep during speeches that they simply could not understand, of jokes that were laughed at but that were not understood, of frustrations and exclusions, of miscommunication, headaches, and clickishness, of Eurocentrism at the heart of the Bolsheviks' internationalism, and of women because it was so frequently women who served as the translators and interpreters at these internationalist events, who were doing essential but ultimately thankless work that has not yet been given its due historical treatment. From this angle, we can more clearly see the Comintern as an institution profoundly shaped by the all too human realities of the real human beings who peopled it. So in other words, with this book, I am calling on historians to spend more time listening in, to listen in on these language politics and these language problems of our historical subjects, as they both contemplated, but also tried to participate meaningfully in their globalizing worlds. And in sharing my book with you today, I want to first give you a, a peek inside and a quick overview of the book's chapters. And after that, I wanna zoom in onto three moments from the book that I think will help to illuminate its key findings. I've chosen these three examples ultimately because I think that they readily invite us into both the dream worlds, but also the real worlds of the Esperantists who animate my analysis. But before we zoom in, um, let's first consider how I've um, conceived and structured uh, the book. The book seeks to transcend right, some kind of ostensible uh, chronological divide of 1917. It begins in late Imperial Russia's era of great reforms, and it ends rather tragically in the solemnist terror of the late 1930s. In all of the book's chapters, my focus is on how ordinary Esperantists imagined, realized, and asserted themselves as global citizens with global concerns. I begin the book with a study of Zamenhof, and my real kind of focus there is to explain how and why his distinctly imperial Russian milieu helped to shape his worldview and how it prompted his utopian vision for a world revolution by means of an international language. The book next turns um, to the ordinary people throughout late imperial Russia who took up Esperanto and really gave life to what by the turn of the last century morphed into a vibrant global Esperantist movement that was rooted in novel border crossing social networks. 
The Bolshevik Revolution, of course, transformed Russia and it transformed the world. And so it should be no surprise to anyone that it kind of shook, rattled, and upended the global Esperantist movement. And the second half of my book examines the fate of Esperanto and Esperantists from the upheavals of 1917 through to the devastating purges and terror of the late Stalinist 1930s. It's in the third chapter, which you probably already guessed, that I focus on the Comintern as the site at which the Bolsheviks first moved to elevate Russian, the language of Lenin, as the lingua franca of 20th century socialist internationalism. In chapter four, I look at how Soviet Esperantists endeavored to take their niche language skills and to apply them to the pursuit of interwar Soviet cultural diplomacy. By means of international pen pal correspondence, transnational radio broadcasting, and a transnational print culture, Soviet Esperantists attempted to spread the fire of Bolshevik revolution abroad in their language of Esperanto. At home, they offered foreign visitors to the Soviet experiment what they claimed was unmediated access to Soviet citizens and to Soviet realities by means of the unfiltered conversations that they argued Esperanto uniquely enabled. Theirs was a vision of comrades without borders. But this, I argue, was a vision of transcending borders that ultimately proved out of sync with a Soviet cultural diplomacy that relied upon linguistic barriers and that was centered on the micromanaged surveillance of foreign visitors and the Soviet citizens that they interacted with. Esperantists in the early Soviet Union raised all kinds of inconvenient questions about linguistic transparency and about grassroots internationalism. In the 20s and in the 30s, Soviet officials increasingly furrowed their eyebrows in worry and consternation as they considered both the dangers, but also these conceivable putative benefits of cross-border friendships between ordinary pen pals conversing in a niche international language. The Esperantists also seemed to distinctly personify the Stalinist dilemma of foreign language instruction in an age of rapid industrialization. And so in the book's fifth chapter, I examined Stalinist debates over foreign language instruction in the 1930s, debates that loomed large over the Soviet Industrial Revolution, but that have as yet garnered little attention from historians. In 1928, the Soviet Union launched a quote, foreign languages to the masses, exclamation point, campaign. <laughs> Industrialization demanded that Soviet citizens be able to access, but also to comprehend blueprints, manuals, and scientific expertise that was largely unavailable to them in the Russian language. Soviet citizens were therefore exhorted to study English, German, and French languages that the Soviet state deemed living foreign languages essential to Soviet industrial success. Esperanto was conspicuously absent from this list of, pri of prioritized foreign languages. And throughout the Stalinist 1930s, the Soviet Union was engaged in wide-ranging debate over foreign language study and methods of international communication. These debate, debates revolved around the practical needs of Stalin's five-year plans, but ideological and security concerns loomed large. And Esperanto was frequently dismissed as anything but 
a serious contender for an international language of expertise transfer. The book ends in tragedy, and namely, it ends with the decimation of the Soviet Esperantist movement during the purges and terror of the late 19, 1930s. This was a time, of course, when Soviet internationalism competed and existed in tension with Stalinist xenophobia. And in the late 1930s, suspicion of foreigners, suspicion of speakers of foreign languages, and suspicion of those, anyone who had cross-border ties, reached a deadly and dangerous crescendo. In this terrible and terrifying climate, Esperantists were among the likeliest targets and the likeliest victims of Stalinist terror. Many leading as well as rank and file Esperantists were branded starting in 1936 as Trotskyite spies engaged in an international conspiracy to bring down the Soviet state an alleged international conspiracy conducted in the language of Esperanto. The death of Esperanto under Stalin, I argue in the book, emblematizes in a particularly dramatic and, and again tragic fashion, the ambiguous premium that was placed on foreign languages and the often precarious position of their speakers in the larger history of Soviet internationalism. But before um, I, I go any further into that, why don't we um, do what I promised at the outset, which was to kind of choose three moments and to zoom in on them to illuminate some of these, these key um, themes that, that uh, reverberate throughout the book. And why not begin where I begin in the book um, with the Samenhof himself and my proposition that Esperanto can only be understood really as not only a kind of distinct product of its time, but also a product that was distinctly of its imperial Russian milieu. Zamenhof's vision emerged from and was shaped by the fertile, if fractious, soil of late imperial Russia. Zamenhof came of age in a momentous time of pitched battles between an aggrieved and increasingly radicalized Russian intelligentsia and a stubborn, increasingly out of touch autocracy. For Zamenhof and many of his fellow Russian Jews in particular, this was also an anguished era of anti-Semitic violence and of searching for answers to the Jewish question. In the apt phrasing of much remembered historian Richard Stites, this was a time of radical social daydreaming. This social daydreaming led Zamenhof and so many of his contemporaries to conceive of radical schemes designed to transform and liberate Russia as the first step towards saving the entire world. Zamenhof himself was born into a Jewish family in the Tsar's Pale of Settlement in 1859. He was a native speaker of Polish, Yiddish, and Russian. He later traced the birth of his Esperantist vision to the polyglot streets and marketplaces of his bustling hometown of Bialystok. And as a child in Bialystok, Zamenkov claimed, he heard a different language spoken every which way he turned his head. And every which way he looked, he said, he saw humiliation, animosity, and bitter conflict dividing Bialystok's diverse population. I was educated to be an idealist, Zamenhof wrote, quote, I was taught that all men are brothers and yet on the streets and in the marketplace, 
everything caused me to feel that people did not exist, that there were only Russians, Poles, Germans, Jews. This always tortured my childhood soul. So as a young man in Imperial Russia's kind of multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-confessional Western borderlands, he had arrived at the conviction that an international language was needed to heal these fractures and that the only kind of language that would be ever able of accomplishing that healing needed, he said, quote, to be absolutely neutral, belonging to none of the now living tongues. No less of an influence on Zamenhof's life were the pogroms that rocked the Pale of Settlement in 1881. Zamenhof and his family spent three days hiding in a Warsaw cellar as the city erupted all around him in anti-Semitic violence. He was then a university student, but he emerged from that cellar absolutely outraged and resolved to confront the Jewish question, this time in print. And so in 1882, he published an essay in the Jewish press that was titled, with a nod to Chernyshevsky, What Ultimately is to be Done? And Zamenhof addressed this anguished essay to his fellow Jews of the Russian Empire. He told them that their assimilationist hopes were nonsense, a dangerous illusion. Jews, he argued, would never be welcome in the Tsarist Empire. He wrote, quote, the Russian people do not love you. They regard you as a plague from which they would be happy to be completely spared. Russia's Jews and the world's Jews, he argued, needed a new route, a new route to the salvation and an escape from the anti-Semitism that suffused and structured their lives. And as for a return to Palestine, Zamenhof by this time also had kind of deemed it a dead end, a non-solution to Jews' plight. Instead, he offered a different solution for the Jewish problem, and that solution was Esperanto. However, when he published the first primer for Esperanto in 1887, in Russian, of course, he strategically marketed, marketed it to humanity first as a practical utility, an international language that could ease the language problems of a globalizing world's exchange of ideas, goods, and peoples. But again, his vision was much more expansive, and he ultimately articulated this larger, radical kind of social daydreaming vision in a publication that he called Hillelism, and that he published in 1901 under a pseudonym. This was, this Hillelism was Zamenhof's programmatic statement for how Esperanto would save Russia's Jews, and ultimately how it would save the world. In it, he asked, he asked his fellow Jews directly, who are we exactly? We are not Russians, nor are we Poles, nor are we Germans. And neither, he said, are we a Jewish nation. Rather, he argued, Jews were a quote, shadow people, clinging to what he regarded as the pro false promises of Zionism and assimilation. What Jews needed to do, Zamenhof argued, was to focus in on what he regarded as the most vital moral and ethical precepts of the Jewish faith and to leave everything else behind. And that core precept, as he understood it, was the core precept of Hillelism. Be kind to others at all times, 
Look at your fellow human beings as fellow human beings. At all times, demonstrate empathy. This, he said, this combined, right? This combined in a kind of a productive fusion with the deployment of an international auxiliary language, one that he had created himself, would be the key to becoming a new people. Not a shadow people, but instead a global moral community in which Jews could find refuge and then invite everyone else in to their liberating, humane, and global moral community. I argue in the book that Esperanto was Zamenhof's own right, lifelong effort to combat the ethnic, the linguistic, and the religious chauvinism that he believed and that he felt very much um, inhered in a Russian empire that was predicated on a hierarchy of diverse people's belonging. He spoke to the world in an international auxiliary language of his own creation, but in a dis distinctive spiritual vernacular nurtured in the soil of late Imperial Russia's upheavals and of its anti-Semitic violence in particular. As a Jew, Zamenhof believed he would never find salvation or true belonging in Russia or anywhere else in the world not revolutionized by Esperanto. So what he was really trying to do, again, was to refashion humanity, to instill in the speakers of his language a new psychology, a new global ethics of empathy, and a revolutionary, right, still revolutionary in 2021, a revolutionary appreciation of human difference that could light a path to global unity. Esperanto, the international auxiliary language, took off, right? It took off in the late 19th and especially the early 20th centuries. It inspired, as I've said, men and women around the globe to learn it and to actively begin communicating with one another. But Hillelism remained a lonely party of one for the most part. It remained a rather lonely Zamenhof endeavor. The truth is that part of the reason why Esperanto was actually so successful in igniting people's imaginations in these years is because people all over the world saw in Esperanto the potential to pursue all kinds of global interests and all kinds of connections, all manner of ideological pursuits. Capitalists and Catholics, scientists and feminists, socialists and stamp collectors, pacifists and school teachers, people all over the world of all different walks of life and with a wide array of interests saw in Esperanto the potential to link themselves to colleagues and potential friends all over the world. In other words, most of the people who became Esperantists in these decades did so not because they were seeking a solution to the Jewish question or even a solution to all that had ailed the Tsarist empire. Instead, they were looking for an international language that they believed could network them into a wider world. And I think it should not be underestimated that many people who embraced Esperanto in its heyday were simply looking to make friends. They were trying to make connection, human connections across all kinds of borders. The British Esperantist Margaret Jones was not alone when she advocated Esperanto as a cure for boredom and loneliness. She wrote in 1908, quote, if you are lonely and you have no friends, if you long for intellectual sympathy, learn Esperanto. You will find warm friends wherever you may seek them, even in some distant corner of the earth. 
Russian Esperantists were among the most active pioneers of Esperantist social networking at the turn of the last century. And they benefited as Esperantists the world over did from Esperanto's emergence coinciding with the expansion of affordable postal services all over the globe. They wrote letters to one another and they exchanged colorful postcards. They told each other their secrets and they also debated the big ideas and the big debates of their day. They found in Esperanto a novel cosmopolitan culture and a means of self-fashioning as modern global people. So you might reasonably ask, how did a village, a village school teacher in rural Russia find a pen pal off an organ? Or how did a chemist in St. Petersburg, Russia find a pen pal in Melbourne, Australia? First, there were the published directories that Zamenhof himself meticulously assembled in Esperanto's early years. These were published directories that included the names and addresses of Esperantists around the world to facilitate pen pal correspondence. And soon the Esperantists also invested in a transnational press. And inside the pages of their globally circulating journals, Esperantists knew that they could find, but also place their own pen pal classified ads. When I was reading these classifieds, I found it impossible to mistake the craving on the part of ordinary people from throughout the Russian empire to discuss using an international language, the burning questions of their day. Theirs was a hunger for global citizenship, a hunger to be intimately connected to their very personal and local concerns. They wanted pen pals with whom they could debate and figure out, this is one of my favorite words that some of them used in their ads, how to figure out their worldviews, right? By exchanging ideas with their Esperantist pen pals. I wanna correspond with Esperantists about social questions, wrote a teacher from Tver. A student wrote in wanting to correspond with Esperantists from all countries on the questions of internationalism and patriotism, federalism, centralism, and autonomy. From Baku came a request to correspond with fellow Esperantists on quote, the most diverse questions of life. Another wanted to discuss one issue and one issue only, the question of women's equality. An Esperantist in St. Petersburg wanted to discuss the question of workers and progressive movements among them. Another wanted to correspond about, quote, the new art, pessimism, the sex question, and life's other vexed questions. This was, as the historian Holly Case has recently reminded us, an age of questions. And educated Russians wanted to take part in what they understood to be international debates about the burning issues of their day. One Russian Esperantist in 1909 breathlessly explained the allure of Esperanto pen pal correspondence. Quote, from Germany, England, France, Spain, Italy, Turkey, China, Japan, 14 nationalities correspond with me, with me who doesn't know any other national language except Russian. And now I have so many friends, wonderful close friends everywhere from all over. And it is Esperanto that has given me all of this. The world he enthused has become intelligible and dear to me. These late Imperial Russian Esperantists were grassroots internationalists who wanted a stake in these global conversations. 
and Esperanto provided them an outlet for epistolary and also literal globetrotting and the forging, what was perhaps most important to them of all, the forging of interpersonal relationships that defied linguistic, national, and cultural borders. Their world, of course, was upended by the Great War, no less than the revolutions that rocked Russia in 1917. But many Esperantists quickly were able to adapt their Esperantist visions to the new dictates of the emerging Bolshevik culture, or they tried to at the very least. A union of Soviet Esperantists was organized in 1921 and its activists vigorously pursued the deployment of Esperanto in the name of international socialist revolution. In the 1920s, they organized Esperanto radio pro programming and pen pal correspondence with workers and with factories abroad. They promised the Soviet state that as Esperantists, they had something super special and super valuable to offer the goals of interwar Soviet cultural diplomacy. They insisted that Esperanto allowed foreigners to converse and to interact with the Soviet people building, in, um, building socialism in real time in a purely unmediated way. When Esperantists exchanged letters with ordinary Soviet citizens or when foreign citizens or foreign Esperantists visited the Soviet Union, they claimed nothing was lost in translation. There was no confusion. There were no linguistic barriers to mutual understanding. There was just, they said, camaraderie and cross-border solidarity. Esperantists, they promised, had made real friends abroad on behalf of the Soviet Union. Kopolev later recalled how as a Soviet schoolboy, he discovered Esperanto in the 1920s. A teacher of his had brought a satchel of Esperantist correspondence to show the class. Kopolev was thunderstruck by its contents letters, postcards, envelopes, journals from all over the world. He later recalled they, they quote, were so bright they seemed lacquered with rare and wondrous stamps. You could hold them in your hands and you could sniff them. You could inhale the air of London, Paris, San Francisco, and Tokyo. What excited Kopolev and Esperantists all over the early Soviet Union, the possibility of unmediated communication with foreigners, is precisely what worried and annoyed state and party officials. As one confidential party report complained as early as 1926, quote, of course it is impossible to control Esperanto correspondence between individual persons. In 1928, party officials began worrying more openly that Esperanto was dangerous in the hands of quote, anti-Soviet elements. Pravda soon suggested that Esperanto, this unregulated, unchecked, strange language seemingly obsessed over and used by a, distinctly, a distinct and largely unregulated minority, occupied what they said was a, quote, dark corner of the cultural front. And so a worrying question overshadowed the Esperanto movement. Were Soviet Esperantist foreign pen pals trustworthy? Was this correspondence healthy? Was it in any conceivable way socialist? And the Bolsheviks had their doubts. In order for Esperantists to be potentially valuable to the Soviet state, their encounters needed to be fully transparent and easily surveillable. Their correspondence 
needed to fulfill the needs of socialist internationalism, not satisfy petty bourgeois navel gazing across and beyond the Soviet Union's borders. So long simmering suspicions about Soviet Esperantists and their ties abroad proved their violent undoing in the context of Stalin's purges and terror. As xenophobia and outsized fears of international conspiracy metastasized in the mid 1930s, Soviet citizens who had extensive contacts with foreigners abroad or fluency in foreign languages came under attack. Stalin's police quickly concluded that the Comintern was, quote, saturated with spies. And the same was generally assumed of agencies responsible for Soviet cultural diplomacy. One Soviet citizen later recalled that in these years, quote, people grew afraid to know foreigners to receive postcards from abroad. The arrests, imprisonment, and execution of Soviet Esperantists began in 1936. Leaders as well as rank and file members of the Union of Soviet Esperantists were hauled into dark corridors by Stalin's police to make confessions about the Trotskyite Esperantist international conspiracy that they were engaged in to bring down the Soviet government. Years of pen pal correspondence between ordinary people curious about their world was now reconfigured as damning evidence of the most heinous of traitorous anti-Soviet plots. Telegraph sorters, engineers, teachers, students, ordinary Esperantists, all of them, they were arrested and punished for their alleged crimes. NKVD interrogators threw in their weary and defeated faces heaps of their envelopes and letters. This was Esperantist correspondence that the NKVD officers themselves could not read or understand, but it didn't matter. Esperanto was deemed a language of subversion and its speakers were condemned as traitors. And so I'd like to kind of end my comments um, reflecting briefly on the life of a Soviet Esperantist who did manage to survive the purges and terror. Her name was Ida Lisichnik, and she is in the center of this image of Esperantist who attended the Congress of Proletarian Esperantists hosted in Leningrad in 1926. She's the woman in the middle in all white. Born in 1893, Lisichnik first learned about Esperanto when she was a university student. And decades later, she could still recall, quote, how the very idea of an international language astonished me, how it had inspired her with its promise of international goodwill and friendship. I was literally burning with enthusiasm, she remembered. She spent the 1920s and the 1930s energetically deploying Esperanto on the Soviet Union's behalf. And as late as 1973, she told interviewers that Esperanto had given her, quote, the happiest days of my life. The happiest days of Ida Lisichnik's life represent an era of great hope and great anxiety an era of globalization that opened up new possibilities for ordinary people just like Lisichnik to reach out and to refashion themselves into global citizens, to network into transnational communities that defied linguistic and political borders. In, these, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Esperanto opened up new worlds to ordinary people, many of them, who would never move beyond the borders of their own small corners of the globe. They, 
their ideas and their dreams at the very least, traveled the world in humble envelopes that effectively transcended state borders, no less than ideological and linguistic boundaries. They lived, they breathed, they spoke in Esperanto, but also in their native languages in ordinary grassroots internationalism. The death of Esperanto in Stalin's Soviet Union is worth our attention, not just because of the tragedy. It's worth our attention because it captures in really stark and devastating fashion, how foreign languages fit awkwardly in the Soviet internationalist imagination as practical necessities of profitable cross-border exchanges, but also as dangerous linguistic weapons of potential subversion, subterfuge, and espionage. The history of Esperanto in revolutionary Russia reminds us, of course, of the practical dilemmas of international communication in a globalizing world. It also highlights how ideologically fraught the internationalist politics of language were in the Soviet Union of Lenin, Stalin, but also their successors. And I hope this book can help us to better listen to, to better listen in on the ordinary people at the heart of late Imperial Russian and Soviet internationalisms, no less than on the language politics that complicated, frustrated, or doomed so many of their endeavors. Thank you.